You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'm sure some of you know the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion, but even so, I want to share it with you as we begin this morning. If you're visiting with us, Charles Spurgeon is one of the most well-known preachers in the history of the church. He lived from 1834 to 1892, and God used him to reach tens of thousands of people with the gospel during his lifetime, and he continues to use the sermons and the writings of Spurgeon to reach untold numbers of people. Here is the story of his conversion. In January of 1850, a 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon was on his way to church, ironically, in the midst of a blizzard. In fact, the blizzard got so bad that he couldn't walk any further, so he turned into a small, primitive Methodist church. And this is how Spurgeon himself told the story. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed in, I suppose. A poor man, a a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look to me. I, said he in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there, you'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had gone about that length and managed to spin out about 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether, Spurgeon said. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. 
he then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. The preacher continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Then and there, Spurgeon said, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Friends, on the heels of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, And the miraculous events recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, the apostle Peter begins to preach, and his sermon could be summed up in the words of that fill-in Methodist preacher, young man, look to Jesus Christ. As Peter begins to explain the events that have unfolded, he ultimately invites the gathered crowd to look to Jesus Christ. Follow along as I read in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. As the text records, Peter steps forward and begins to offer an explanation for what's happening. The part of his explanation that we'll study this morning has two sections, the prophecy of Joel and the presentation of Christ. 
The prophecy of Joel and the presentation of Christ. First, Peter clarifies exactly what is happening here by connecting the events of Pentecost to the prophecy of Joel. That's verses 17 through 21. Peter explains, this is not the result of drunkenness after all. And perhaps there's a a hint of sarcasm here, but how could they be drunk when it's only nine o'clock in the morning? But if this is not the result of too much drinking, then what's going on? Well, Peter's explanation is clear. He makes direct reference to what the prophet Joel prophesied in days past. He says, this, what's happening in front of you, is that, what Joel prophesied. So friends, when we carefully look at the way in which Peter brings together Joel's prophecy in this event called Pentecost, what what can we or what should we conclude? Let me give you, just a way of, as a way of understanding this, let me give you four conclusions. Four conclusions. First, I just mentioned it, and it's what we talked about last week. Pentecost is the fulfillment of prophecy. Pentecost is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus promised the Spirit, the Spirit came, and Peter connects the dots. This was the plan. He informs his audience that what was promised has been fulfilled. Which leads us to the second conclusion. Pentecost signals the beginning of the last days. Pentecost signals the beginning of the last days. Look at verse 17. Peter quotes from Joel, but he makes one notable change. In Joel 2, verse 28, the text says, and it shall come to pass afterward. But here Peter begins, and in the last days. You see, now that Christ has ascended and Pentecost has come, we are awaiting the final act of the redemptive drama, the return of the king. So Peter is helping place the events here on a sort of timeline. The coming of the Spirit has inaugurated the beginning of the end times. And the end times in this context is an undefined time period during which the Holy Spirit will be indwelling and empowering the people of God to carry out the mission of God, to take the gospel of God to all the peoples of the earth. So let's, let's pause. Let's pause for a moment and think. If Peter is announcing that the end times have begun, then what does this mean for us a couple of thousand years later? Well, friends, at the very least, shouldn't it create a sense of urgency in evangelism? That is precisely what it created in the first century church, isn't it? That's what we'll read about throughout the book of Acts. If the Spirit has come and the Lord will return, then in between these two events, which is where we find ourselves, there is an undeniable task in front of us and there is much work to do. In fact, you'll remember the last time Darren led us, we sang a song called Facing the Task Unfinished. The whole song is worth meditating on, but consider the first verse. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, 
a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know Thee, renew before Thy throne the solemn pledge we owe Thee to go and make Thee known. This leads us quite naturally to a third conclusion, and it's this. Pentecost enables every Christian to make Christ known. Pentecost enables every Christian to make Christ known. I want you to look at verses 17 and 18 again. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Prophecy, visions, and dreams are all clumped or lumped into the same category here. But I want you to notice that the promise about this prophesying is for your sons and daughters, your young men and old men, and then for my male and female servants. In Joel, this promise is made to Israel, and here in Acts, it is applied to all believers. Meaning, brothers and sisters, that every true servant of God is filled with the Holy Spirit and is therefore equipped and called to be a witness for Jesus. In fact, listen to John Stott on this point. He writes, If in its essence prophecy is God speaking, God making himself known by his word, then certainly the Old Testament expectation was that in the New Covenant days, the knowledge of God would be universal and the New Testament authors declare that this has been fulfilled through Christ. In this sense, all God's people are now prophets. In fact, Luther understood prophecy here as the knowledge of God through Christ which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes to burn through the word of the gospel. I remember camping as a little kid, watching my grandfather prepare charcoal for grilling. It was like watching an artist, meticulously placing each briquette in just the right place, then carefully lighting the perfect formation he had constructed. I remember watching him then fan the smoldering mound of charcoal to keep the fire hot. Friends, the Holy Spirit fans the gospel flame within our hearts, causing it to burn hotter and hotter, ultimately producing in us the action of proclamation. It is the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer that enables every believer to prophesy, to proclaim the word of God and the works of Jesus so that all the nations might hear and turn in repentance and faith. Because we know Christ, we must make him known. Because we know Christ, we must make him known. This is the work of the Spirit. And it is for every single 
Christian. A fourth conclusion, Pentecost pushes our gaze forward. Pentecost pushes our gaze forward. Again, look at verses 19 and 20. And I will show wonders in the heavens, in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. There are lots of opinions about these two verses. I think it's most likely that these words of Joel have been fulfilled in Jesus. Everything from his supernatural birth and miraculous activity to his resurrection and ascension. But in view here, as well as undoubtedly the outpouring of the Spirit and the miraculous events that we will encounter throughout the book of Acts. But, but this may also be referring to some events that are still in store for us sometime in the future. Whatever they are, and whenever they happen, they will precede what? They will precede the great and magnificent day of the Lord, which I take to mean that day when Christ will return and God will judge the nations. So again, here, brothers and sisters, we have a timeline of sorts marked out by two events and a time in between. And let me suggest that the reality of this timeline should create in all of us, again, a tremendous sense of urgency in evangelism. Uh, David Peterson writes, the prophet Joel does not indicate the length of time between the outpouring of God's spirit and the outpouring of his wrath. But the former is a sign that the latter will most definitely take place. Friends, just as sure as the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, Jesus will come again, and every sinner will stand before the righteous judge and receive his final verdict. Which is why we find what we do in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the last day, at the time of final judgment, only those who have called upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We will encounter this truth again in just a few chapters. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you are here this morning, and you have never turned in repentance and faith to Jesus, trusting in Him alone to save you from your sin and give you peace with God, then I would plead with you, look to Jesus and live. If you're trusting in anyone or anything other than Jesus or, or anyone and anything in addition to Jesus, then according to God's own Word, you will not be saved. There's also a note of hope here, isn't there, for the struggling and doubting Christian? 
your salvation is secure in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the plight of sinners is something that we are confronted with in this text. The plight of sinners and the imminent return of Jesus remind us that there is an urgent need for the gospel. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary to China in the mid and late 1800s. He established what was known as the China Inland Mission. The the story of the founding of the China Inland Mission is deeply challenging. Taylor had already served in China for a period of time, but had returned to England after resigning the mission board that he was originally part of. Even though he was away from China, his heart continued to grow heavy because of the great need for the gospel there. In 1850, there were estimated to be around 300,000 believers in China. But that's 300,000 out of 450 million people. I want you to listen to what Taylor wrote on Sunday, June 25th, 1865, as he was back in England. He wrote, Unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for His service. I told Him that all the responsibility as to issues and consequences must rest with Him, that as His servant it was mine to obey and to follow Him, His to direct, to care for, and to guide me as those who might labor with me. Need I say that peace at once flowed into my burdened heart. Redeemer family, we believe that the primary motivation for taking the gospel to the nations is our longing for Jesus to be worshipped, but but may we never forget the reality of hell. As we think about the outpouring of the Spirit and the future outpouring of God's wrath, as we consider the reality that only those who believe in Jesus will be saved, our hearts should be moved with compassion. Our mouths should be opened to declare the good news of Jesus. We want those who are perishing. We want those who are perishing, even in this moment, to embrace the gospel and be rescued by our great and merciful God. So we need the Spirit who now indwells us to awaken us. To open our eyes to see that the time between Pentecost and the second coming of Jesus is, as John Stott calls it, a long day of opportunity. 
Do you see each day as an opportunity to make Jesus known? In your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? Do you view your life as a God-given opportunity to invest in the Great Commission? Is every day for you just another opportunity to, to get more and more, to become entangled more deeply in the things of this world, to have your attention diverted more and more from the Great Commission to the gathering of things that will bring you comfort and safety and security? Have you ever considered taking a job overseas and living as a missionary who doesn't need to raise any support? Have you entertained the possibility that God is calling your family to move somewhere for the primary purpose of helping establish a church among unreached or underreached people? Parents, do you see your children as potential missionaries? Have you offered them to God for His purposes? High school and college students, have you ever considered giving two years of your life to serve in a church planting or missions context? A few months ago, I encountered the following story written by J.D. Greer, who pastors a large church near several universities in Durham, North Carolina. J.D. wrote, with a huge number of college students, we realized early on that we would never be the wealthiest church, but we would always have a large pool of potential missionaries. So we began to challenge our graduating college seniors to let ministry be the most shaping factor in determining where they would pursue their careers. That's good advice for everybody. We ask our college students to spend their first two years after graduation pursuing their careers in a place where we are planting a church. We tell them, you have to get a job somewhere. Why not get one in a place where you can be part of a strategic work of God? We challenge them, give us two years and watch God change the world. Tongue-in-cheek, Greer writes, we sometimes refer to this as our Mormonization strategy. But friends, God has used this strategy incredibly. As the Summit Church just recently commissioned their 1,000th church member to go out on one of their church planting teams. Jesus has called us to go. The Spirit empowers us to go. The great need of the lost compels us to go. But are we willing to go? Are we willing to prioritize the mission? Our text transitions from the prophecy of Joel 
to the presentation of Christ. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You can hear the dire seriousness in Peter's words. This is a confrontation. He is declaring something that is true. So those listening have a decision to make. They will either reject Jesus or they will believe. Peter unfolds the truth concerning Jesus of Nazareth by explaining his life and ministry, his death and his resurrection. First, his life and ministry in verse 22. Jesus was truly man. He lived an actual life. And Peter is making it clear to his audience that this Jesus has been brought to their attention by his mighty works. These mighty works, wonders, and signs, they made it clear that Jesus was one who stood in special relation with God. He was one through whom God was acting in a unique way. This is why the text explains the mighty works of Jesus as things God did through him. In other words, Peter is saying, men of Israel... You have seen God. You have seen God in the person of Jesus, and you have witnessed the power of God through the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And what was your response? You murdered him. You murdered him. So that's where Peter goes next. He points to the death of Jesus in verse 23. Jesus of Nazareth was truly a man. He lived an actual life. He was really killed. And his death is attributed simultaneously to the sovereign purpose of God, but also to the wicked actions of men. So here we find divine sovereignty and human responsibility inescapably connected. Was it the definite, predetermined plan of a holy God that Jesus would be crucified on a Roman cross as the perfect substitute for sinners? Yes. Did Judas sinfully betray Jesus? And did the Jews sinfully reject Jesus? And did the Romans sinfully crucify Jesus? Yes. And they were 100% responsible for their actions. 
Now, you might find this confusing. If you do, you're not alone. So here's my simple advice for you. Believe it all. Believe it all. Embrace everything the Bible teaches by faith. Even when it seems like there's a tension in your own mind, believe the Word of God. God is absolutely sovereign, and yet man is totally responsible for his choices, for his decisions, ultimately for his rejection of Jesus Christ, which is where we find this audience, at least at this point. So Peter points to the life and ministry of Jesus, then to his death, And then finally to his resurrection in verse 24. After he was crucified and buried, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's a wonderful text. Friends, Jesus really lived. He really died. He really conquered death. The resurrection of Jesus was his ultimate vindication as the Messiah. Jesus was the promised one. The one who would come, who would live a perfect life, who would die a substitutionary death, who would then conquer the grave, showing, showing irrefutably that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the true Deliverer. I want you to hear how one theologian describes what Peter is explaining here because I think it could be confusing or, or we might miss some of the richness of this. This is a wonderful declaration of the good news. When it is claimed that God freed Jesus from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, a word that normally applies to the agony of childbirth is used. The whole expression, part of which is borrowed from Psalm 18 and verse 4, provides a mixed metaphor in which Death is regarded as being in labor and unable to hold back its child. So here's the point. God brought the pangs to an end so that the birth, which is to bring Christ to light, may attain its goal. It was impossible for the son of David to be prevented by death from exercising his eternal kingly rule. Friends, again, Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah, truly God and truly man. He is the victorious Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that through his miraculous birth, sinless life, substitutionary death, and his glorious 
resurrection. Jesus did everything that was necessary to secure the salvation of every single person who repents of their sin and believes in him. Peter is presenting his audience with the most important decision they will ever make. He is asking them, what will you do with Jesus? Ultimately. This is the question that every person here must answer as well. And many of you have, but some of you haven't. So I want to offer you a loving warning. You cannot ignore Jesus. To ignore him is to reject him. But, but if you turn in repentance and faith, he will receive you. In fact, that's what we'll find in this sermon. Here, Peter says, you murdered Jesus, but then he calls this same group to repent and believe. So you may have spent your days rejecting Jesus, running from him, and yet in this moment, through this text of Scripture, there is a gracious invitation. So I plead with you, as that untrained Methodist minister pleaded with Spurgeon, look to Jesus. Look to him sweating great drops of blood. Look to him hanging on the cross. Look to him dead and buried. Look to him as he rose from the dead. Look to him as he ascends to sit at the Father's right hand. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you in humility with contrite hearts. Asking you to work through your word, your word which has presented Christ to us. The one who lived and died and emerged victorious from the grave. We can't help but think about Jesus as our substitute. We marvel at your plan, God, your sovereign plan, that you would love sinners in this way, you would send your only son and that you would choose the way for us to experience salvation and rescue and eternal life would be for your son to suffer and die 
But that grave, a place of death, would actually become a place of birth. Giving birth to resurrection life. And now through Christ and in Christ, all those who believe will experience the same resurrection life. As we have considered a text this morning where Christ has been presented so clearly, I actually want us to take a few minutes. I want to ask Brandon to play quietly. And I want us to take a few minutes before we sing again to consider Christ. In particular, if you are here this morning and you have never turned in repentance and faith to Jesus, I plead with you to turn to him now. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will love you with a perfect love. After we have considered this for a few moments, we will stand and sing together.